my name is Chase, and I'm. It's a Sunday. It's a lovely day to be alive. Another hectic week. A lot has happened. A lot is happening. A lot is yet to happen. I know that in the coming week we're going to be seeing the announcements of the reinstatement of Trump or the rising of Biden. There's a lot that happened in Europe as well. There was an, an earthquake that affected, ironically, both Greece and Turkey at the same time. Quite ironic, I think. But then, yeah. yeah. A lot happened, and yeah, I think let's just put our phones on silence and get and kids work. Yeah, man. So no, hundred percent. And uh, also, there was the earthquake in the Philippines. I mean, yes. you got the. Uh, I think it's Typhoon Goni, and yeah. then you had um, another instance of a terror attack happening in France. Oh, they that was quite crazy. Yeah, so it was, it was quite a lot, Montredam. It was quite a lot that happened, quite a lot, quite a lot. And I, I sometimes I wish we had, you know, like the whole day to speak about these things, but then we can only do so much. And we can at least mention them because they're quite important to, to mention it at least, you know, at minimum. Mm. Because, yeah, it's, it's quite hectic, you know, we're just seeing a number of problems mm. across the board. But then let's let's get to work and, and go into detail with some of these things and... You want to kick us off or should I, should I get, yeah. get the ball um, rolling? Well, just news just in. Um, John Stianaisen has been elected as the new, as the DA leader. And Helen yeah. Zilla has been re-elected as a federal council chair. Um, yeah. It's an article out of Daily Maverick by Rebecca Davis. Uh-huh. Um, so just so you know, uh, John Stianaisen has been elected as the new party leader for the next three years. Um and it basically was an expected outcome. Uh, Stianaisen yeah. Stian beat rival Mbali Ntuli with 80% of the votes cast at the party's federal congress. Um, and yeah, Stianaisen said that um, Mbali fought him every step of the way and then she never gave up. Uh, so yeah, man, I, it's quite interesting. I saw an article the week, in the week that we need to stop cheating even if it's just for the sole purpose of the ANC not having uh, the majority share, we should stop treating yeah. the DA and the EFF to extend as lesser parties, you know, um, because we need that checks and balances. And I think that's important to have, you know, uh, whereas, you know, if you look at uh, the Republicans and liber- liberals in America, it's almost like 50-50, depending on the day, you know, um, yeah. whereas you can, you know that there's a, the majority is ANC and then DA and EFF and the rest of the parties make up a small percentage. So, you know, I think the DA, the ANC needs a composition in that sense. So, yeah, yeah. true story, true story. And first things first, man, congratulations to, to John. You know, he, he put in the work. He's, he's clearly earned his, his achievements of becoming the new leader of the party. And I think it, pre- it presents an interesting time for the DA, whereby, you know, the race, race tensions in the country are at a height. And it's going to be interesting to see how John actually ap- approaches the balance of trying to keep the voters they have and also mm. try to get in new, mo- new voters of, you know, black people, colored people, Indian people. So it's quite an interesting time to see this move. And then regarding the reappointment of Helen Zilla, I, I don't know, that's a bit contentious given the things she said regarding, you know, oppression, racism and stuff. And 
it leaves a lot to be desired because also the reappointment is a reflection of, you know, what's happening within the party itself. And if there's still room for someone like Zilla, it, it, you can't help but wonder as to what's going on really, really inside the party beyond what the media sees and what we get to hear and see on, on, on TV and see in the newspapers as well. But yeah, it's interesting times. It's going to be interesting to see how this unfolds as, as time goes by. As I've said, you know, race is an important factor at this point in time. And it's going to be interesting to see how John campaigns in the next set of elections. Are we going to see the same playbook whereby, you know, they bash the ANC and make that the campaign rhetoric? Or are they going to try to come up with something beyond just bashing the ANC or John come mm. up with something new? It's it's quite interesting. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be quite interesting, to be honest, because now remember, the day is moving from a previously black leader in Musa mm. Maimane to a white leader in John Stonehazen. And as I've said, race is, you know, at high at this point in time. So there's quite a lot to think about. There's quite a lot to ponder. And yeah, we wish him the best. And should he have the necessary power to make changes? Let's hope he makes changes that are going to benefit the country and not his pockets as well. No, 100%, 100%. I think we know that ANC is inherently corrupt and it's it's good to have somebody that just opposes opposes that. And like you said, it's going to be interesting times in regards to like with all the racial tension going on in the in the country uh, to see how they deal with it and kind of build bridges, you know. So that that's exciting. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. It, it, over to you, man. What what have you seen this week? Yeah, yeah. I, I think we can't really say much on this because it's unfolding for now. It's something you know, fresh off, fresh off the, the press, and yeah. But anyway, I I want to go back to something that keeps the day going, which is bashing the ANC and the decisions it takes. And it relates to the medium-term budget policy statements which we got in this past week from our finance minister, Tito Mboweni. And for me, it paints, you know, a sad picture in terms of the country's finances. It's 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 quite worrying, if you ask me, to be honest. And it, again, it leaves a lot to be desired. I'm not quite sure how we are to achieve, you know, some economic fortunes of, or economic fortunes yes and sometimes if we are going to keep spending or if we are to keep spending rather our money in such a sense as a country it it makes no sense to me but then yeah i i'm not that smart i say that every week i'm always open to you know better opinions than mine but yeah here here, here goes the article is from the the author is lamise omaji of financial 24 or fin 24 if you wish and the title reads mboweni agrees to sa's 10.5 billion rand bailout but wait for it. There are no funds for the SAPC, the post office, and the now. So that alone, it just caught my eye. I was like, how the hell can you assign 10.5 billion rands to the SAA, but have no money for the SAPC, the post office, and the now? But yeah, mm-hmm. it's 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 one of those things, you know. But in here, here goes nothing. So National Carrier SA will get 10.5 billion rand to fund its business rescue process which started back in December. The funding will be provided from, wait for it, from cuts to other national departments and to the entities as well as local and provincial conditional grants. 
The monies will be made available from reductions from national departments and entities as well as reductions from local and provincial conditional grants, according to the medium-term budget policy statements which Finance Minister Tito Mboweni tabled in Parliament on Wednesday. The 10.5 billion rand is in addition to the 6.5 billion rand that SA was allocated in the budget of 2020 for setting the guaranteed debts and interests. The national carrier, which is insolvent, needs 19.6 billion rand to implement its business rescue plan. Entities such as SAPC, the Post Office and Danel are among those who are seeking additional financing given the harsh impacts of COVID-19 on operations. But no announcement of additional funding for these entities was announced. According to the medium-term budget policy statements, the Independent Communications Authority of South Africa, ICASA, the same guys are saying that SAPC can charges for charges for watching Netflix are going to receive 85 million rands for the licensing of high demand spectrum. This auctioning process is said to be completed in March 2021. Power utility ESCOM, which has been in, in debt of about 490 billion rands, also received its allocated share of 23 billion rands for the fiscal year. And more interestingly, ESCOM has used 320 billion rands of its 150 billion rand and guarantees so far. Treasury noted that ESCOM has made progress in implementing its turnaround plan by achieving cost savings. The lockdown, however, has slashed ESCOM's revenue by about 9 billion rands to date, according to the CEO, Andre Dereta. The land bank, which began defaulting on its debt in April 2020, has been provided with 3 billion rands by the government. And this is for interest, and the land bank will require an additional 7 billion rands over the medium term to support its restructuring. It's quite a lot. I'll just park there for now, and then we can move on from there. But yeah, there's quite a lot as it is. 10.5 billion rand for SAA on top of the 6.5 billion rands that was already assigned to them. No money for the SAPC, which I, which like communication is a basic human right. No money for the post office. The very mm. post office that's meant to compete with DHL, with the Postnet, no money for mm. them. No money for Danel. The guys are meant to protect our borders, protect our seas, especially with something that happened this week concerning oil and gas in South Africa. There's even a greater need for sea and land protection. Mm. And what else is there? More money for the land bank and money for your casa that makes sense for me because if you can roll out the money for your casa then it allows them to to allocate more spectrum and that will improve connectivity in terms of internet so there'll be more spectrum for vodacom telecom salsi rain and all other players as well giving us more money makes sense i think We've all seen how Andre Dereta has come in. He's steadied the ship. You know, it's, it, it looks a bit more stable now. Yes, there are still problems within. But then I think we are not at a point whereby there's actually hope in, in in trying to save ESCOM. But then worrying is that they've used 320 billion rands of the 350 billion rands. That's quite alarming. And yeah, the land bank as well. It's quite a number of things. So you can, you can mm. pick your poison. You can pick your poison and tell us what you think. No, um, it's crazy, man. I we, we spoke about the, uh, you know, um, how I say this week in, week out. If our national arms uh, facilitator and manufacturer is not getting a bailout, even though it's only been in the red in the last year, it speaks to the buddy-buddy system uh, going on in um, 
government, you know. Um, so I found that a bit of a fuck up, you know. I think that um, yet again, we we I've told you we need to just stop SAA. I mean, I just saw an article now. I won't get into it, but SA Express they halting flights because of um, they're unable to pay the maintenance bill. So now they're not allowed to um, pay wages and everything because they don't have enough cash flows and everything. So th- that's the problem, man. Um, and we keep seeing it week in, week out. How many times is SAA going to fuck up before we realize that, you know, it's just a mismanagement? You're giving money every time to um, people that don't know how to use the money, you know, yeah. every time. Yeah. And when are we going to say, let's just cut them off and move on? I mean, the, I'd, if we looked at it, it's only in recent times that Denal has been experiencing problems, right? So if they are making money, you know, you told me of oh, the deal that they had to supply, I think it was the Israelis with weapons, and yeah. uh, they needed and the a surety yeah, in the Egyptians, and they needed a surety, yeah. and the government wouldn't give that, right? So if they, these contracts in place, they can make money, they just need government backing, and we're not, it speaks to a problem, right? And um, I get why maybe they don't want to give money to the post office or SABC because they're failing, right? But I mean, rather them than the SA. I mean, how many times have we had to bail out the SA? Um, mm. <coughs> sorry. And sorry. then, thanks, man. And then, uh, yeah, it's just crazy. I wanted to uh, switch gears. Um, a little bit. I don't know if you had any um, other anything else to add about that. Yeah, just one thing on my end. Like for me, it makes no sense to bail out SAA because, especially in these time where there's been a downturn in in travel in internationally, mm. we have seen like bigger airlines, you know, discarding mm. of 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 a number of of of, of planes such as the Airbus mm. A380, and we've seen Etihad struggle we've seen many airlines struggle across the world you know united delta mm. klm lufthansa a number of airlines and these are airlines with money these are airlines that have been making profits mm. for the past 10 20 years and you want to save an airline in these conditions whereby there's been a downturn and you don't even have a customer base in a sense because they've been fly- flying for what now about a year so <sighs> It's like trying to save, you know, I don't know, someone's already dead and you can just tell that they're dead, which is trying to resuscitate them. But mm. yeah, it's one of those things we can switch gears, man, and, and move on. I feel like we've, you know, gone on, gone on about SAA, Donnell, the post office for the time, from the time you started, really. Yeah. And you still complain about the same thing. So, you know, it's we don't want to be one of those people who complain day in and day out about the same thing. Let's switch gears and let's move on. Okay, so um, it's a uh, it's an article out of the Guardian. Um, it's basically Macron criticizes Turkey's imperial inclinations as rows between as row between the countries escalate. In an interview with Al Jazeera, the French president also tried to calm tensions with Muslims world over uh, caricatures of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, so the French president has uh, accused Turkey of adopting a bellicose stance towards its NATO allies, saying tensions could ease if his Turkish counterpart showed respect and did not tell lies. 
uh, yes, sought to, uh, to calm flaring tensions with Muslims around the world after increasingly heated rhetoric following the murder of French school teacher Samuel Patti, uh, who shared caricatures of the Prophet Muhammad alongside other cartoons as part of a discussion on freedom of free speech. Uh, Bacon said uh, that France's wish was things would calm down, but for this to happen, it is essential that the Turkish president respects France, respects the U European Union, respects its values, and does not tell lies and not utter insults. He noted France offered condolences to Turkey following the deadly earthquake in Asia and has also offered to send help to the scene. He described Turkey's intervention in Syria as a surprise and aggression for NATO allies and said Ankara had not respected an arms embargo in Libya while showing a deeply aggressive attitude in the eastern Mediterranean. I noted, I note that Turkey has imperial implications in this region and I think those imperial implications are not a good thing for the stability of the region. I, th I think that's quite interesting, you know. Yeah. Um, I, Turkey's trying to st step on the big stage again, you know. We saw yeah. how they how they dealt with um, Syria and so forth. And you know what, you know, so that, just a little fascinating backstory. Uh, I, you know, I'm a fan of the YPG and so forth and so forth. For those who don't know, I urge you to read up on the, the YPG. It's quite fascinating. Um, but to sum it up, a YPG is like a volunteer army. So regardless if you have military experience or anything, you can go join and uh, there's a lot, there's thousands of Westerners that have gone to go join the YPG and you basically fight against ISIS. That's, that's what it is. And um, what they've done is, um, so the YPG, uh, and I follow a number of them on Instagram and they hate the Turkish because the Turkish imprison them. The Turkish are as bad as ISIS, a lot of them claim. And you know what? I We're seeing this rhetoric coming out of Turkey the whole time. And, you know, when this last week we spoke about it or the week before where they tried to uh, threaten Greece about territorial waters and things. Yeah. So I get what Macron is saying about uh, Turkey's imperial inclinations, but it's going to see. It's going to be interesting to see with the rise of, for example, if ISIS retakes its territory, what's going to happen. You know, um, and you know, uh, with the Libya situation and so forth, uh, Turkey is quite. You know, its location, its location, and its location, and Turkey has the, the potential to take over that whole landmark. You know. Uh, that whole yeah. section of space. I mean, there are the strength in that sec uh, in that uh, region of the world. So it's going to be interesting, and I think that um, the attack with Greece would be uh, a mistake. You know, they don't want to fight on too many fronts. That was a downfall yeah. of the Nazis. You know, and I think everybody loves the Greeks, so I think they'll get involved in the if. Turkey tries to boss or bully the Greeks. Yeah, I I agree, man. I look the story of the Turks is quite interesting because as much as the Union is trying to calm them down, they just don't seem like they want to calm down at all. And I I feel like by and large, there's you know there's always two sides to a story, 
and we only hearing this side. But then I'm sure if you you were to go to Turkey or what, whatever the case would be, you'd have a, you'd hear a different kind of story regarding this whole thing. And look, for me, it's it's interesting to see this kind of instability because theory tells us that you know countries such as those in the EU don't fight each other. But then now we're seeing these ambitions by Turkey, whereby it's kind of throwing the cat amongst the pigeons, whereby it's kind of wanted to do its own thing, and it's creating this challenge to the whole stability of the region. So it's it's quite something. And then you know you throw in someone like Macron, who's trying to calm them down. I understand where Macron is coming from, as you know, it's just a world leader generally. But then, by and large, Emmanuel Macron has actually been very problematic in terms of what he says, what he does when he travels. So it's it's interesting to see a guy like him stepping up and actually trying to bring and calm Turkey down. Because, as I said, he's been problematic in his travels. He said quite quite a number of things that are that have, you know, pushed people up the wrong way and, you know, just sent them around the bend a bit. So... It's it's quite something to see this happening right now at this point in time. And I wonder how this will play out in the EU, given all the troubles they're currently facing now and, you know, external threats or, yeah, forces, yes, and threats and influences such as China trying to have a greater role in the EU. So you let me know what you think. I think just to give context, right, so this is France is on edge after uh, the republication in early September of Cartons of the Prophet by the Charlie Hebdo Weekly, which is followed by an attack outside its former offices, uh, the beheading of a teacher and an, and an attack on a church in Nice that left three dead. So Mac- Macron sparked protest across the Muslim world following the death of Patty by saying France would never renounce its laws permitting blasphemous caricatures. But in an apparent bid to reach out to Muslims, Macron sought to strike a softer tone in a long interview with the Qatar-based channel. I can understand uh, that people sh- could be shocked by caricatures, but I will never accept that violence um, can be justified. I understand the feelings feelings that arose. I respect them, but I want you to understand understand the role that I have. My role is to calm things down as I'm doing here. But at the same time, it is at the same time, I have to protect these rights. I will always defend in my country the freedom to speak, to write, to think, to draw. Um, so it's it's quite interesting. You know, you, you've got this play between religious freedom and um, religious freedom and uh, freedom of speech. So yeah. it's a fine balancing act, and it's going to be interesting to see how he channels the two. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. It's a tricky sentiment because, you know, as much as drones, American drones are a recruiting tool, acts like this um, and statements like this is also yeah. a recruiting tr- tool. Yeah. You know, if you, uh, if you continue to allow, like... Um, I would I say rude, fucked up caricatures of like your religious leaders, then obviously people are going to be offended. Just imagine uh, some country or Islamic country had to uh, post hate pictures of the Pope or Jesus or, you know, like they'd be up in arms. We'd see another yeah. uh, crusade, you know, and that's what yeah. the crusades were about. So I think the sentiment needs, 
I, I don't want to say regulated because I don't feel, I feel like freedom of speech is freedom of speech. But I mean, to, you know, maybe just regulate and say, listen, yeah, this is but too much, you know. Uh, yeah. uh, why would you be head, uh, show a cartoon of the Prophet Muhammad being beheaded and so forth like that, you know? Yeah, man, I, I fully agree there with you because as much as there's, you know, freedom or freedom, or freedoms rather that relates to religion and freedoms that relates to, you know, speech and you know expressing yourself and whatnot. But then, freedoms are it's two streets. You have the freedom, the rights itself, and the responsibility to ensure that when you enjoy your rights, you don't infringe on the rights of the person that's you know on the receiving end or of another person. So in this case. I think it's trying to then try and find that balancing act between the freedom itself and trying to limit and minimize the harm the realization of that freedom causes. So in this case, I, I think Turkey itself and, you know, the Muslim world, it's mm. not the time to point fingers, you know, to play the blame game and whatnot. Mm. As as much as, yes, we understand that the Muslim world has been, you know, greatly harmed and affected by this. And we, we fully understand. But then pointing fingers doesn't solve the problem. Mm. We we have to try and find solutions. Yeah, that's the whole point. We have to try and find solutions, not yeah. point fingers. And I think then now, now is the time we, being the president, you have to step up and say, look, this has happened A, B, and C, and we realize that in trying to enjoy our rights, we infringed mm. on yours, we apologize, but this is what we can do. And, you know, it's obviously reciprocity and trying to balance all those things. So, mm. you know, quite a lot is happening right now because this happens at an interesting time whereby we are seeing, you know, the rise of nationalism, you know, across the world. We are seeing the rise of, you know, a look trying to look more inwards and become more domestic. But then that's hard to do in a globalized world as well because, you know, there's travel, there's moving around easily and whatnot. So there's quite a number of things at play here. So you can't just easily try to look at them and protect and close. So I think that's why then stepping up is important. That is why conversation is important. This is why all these things that are beyond closing your borders, that are beyond protectionism, that are beyond nationalism, are important because they allow a different alternative, a different way of thinking of doing things. And I think while speaking of closing borders and nationalism and protectionism, there's something I want to get to concerning COVID-19, but then I don't want to jump the gun. Maybe have any any closing thoughts, then we can just move on to this article concerning COVID-19. I just want to say that, you know, this attack has, um, because there's been various knife attacks across France, and um, I just saw an article now. So they're sending the military in to go to all the schools now. So there's going to be military officials when the term opens up on Monday again mm. uh, at uh, all schools, as well as um, they're sending additional 120 policemen to NICE. Uh, France. So as, uh, we're seeing a more militarized uh, world, and it's some. We're gonna have to sit down, right? All the religious leaders need to come together and be like, "Is this the world that we want?" You know, I'm not trying yeah. to sound all hippie and tree hugger like and stuff like that, but you know <laughs> what? It, it it's. I don't want to say. I I don't know. Hear me out, right? Could you say this is like this various radical? radicalized thing you know we we see this concept of everything that's not western needs to be changed and i think that's why you have these 
religious wars of sorts. You know, that's why we see jihads because um, there's this idea by Western countries that they need to um, they need to imperialize and Westernize these societies, and sometimes not for the good. I mean, that's why the Taliban have always been so vocal and that's why they're still standing today because they want to keep their culture and yes for the some part some part it might be ignorance um and them stuck in their ways but at the same time you also got to realize that it's not your society it's the people and if the people want to live as cavemen then they want to live as cavemen i'm not saying that the um that the middle east is cavemen no that's not what i'm saying I'm just saying that people's cultures need to be respected and people need to live their best life. So you choose how you want to live and so forth and so forth. But we also need to understand it's the same thing, you know, where we talk about um, where we talk about having to um, to what degree do I have to partake in your self-esteem, you know, and the same goes with that. You know, why must these Middle Eastern countries accept this Western uh way of life you know it's 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 not a perfect way of life that's what i'm saying definitely Um, yeah that's just my thoughts you know um so maybe all religious leaders need to come down sit together break bread and just give each other high fives yeah 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 man it's 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 interesting times you know quite interesting times because as i said there's a number of things at play here like nationalism protectionism and you know being more inward looking but then yeah, I, I think there's a lot that needs to be done, I think, by all of us in this case, you know, because we don't, we can't just expect, you know, things to happen at the top and then trickle down, because at the end of the day, the living happens on the ground, so it makes no mm. sense for the leaders to break bread at the top and only for there to be no difference on the ground, because that's where the killings happen, that's where the living happens, and that's where the vast majority of the tolerance has to take place. So there's quite a lot of work for Everyone's would do in this regard, you know, yourself and I included. So there's quite a lot that has to be done. But then I'd like us to stay in Europe in, to some degree. But then this is, you know, a matter of global importance. It's a coronavirus. It's killed over a million people by now. So it's, you know, we all wear a mask. It's quite uncomfortable, but we wear it nonetheless. And it's concerning the coronavirus vaccine, the one being produced or developed rather, by Oxford University and AstraZeneca, the pharmaceutical company. So I'm just going to give you a rundown of, I think this is good news in my books because it points to the possibility of getting a vaccine, possibly, a big possibly, before the end of the year. So I think that's something to smile about before we try to go, you know, all doom and gloom on the people today. So let's just try to give, you know, something to smile about. And I, I think if... If this is developed and it comes to fruition, it will allow some return to normality and could save what's left of the world economy. So the title reads, Coronavirus Vaccine by Oxford AstraZeneca Produces Immune Response Among Adults. And the authors are Guy Falconbridge, Kate Killand and Kate Halton of Global News. So I'm just going to give a rundown of the article, then we can discuss and see what we can make of this. Interesting times concerning this for me. I just need to say this. Interesting times because as much as we may develop, or those who are developing may develop a vaccine between now and whenever, it's for me, the interesting thing is the distribution and access to the vaccine for poorer countries of the world. You know, luckily for us as South Africans, we have quite a strong 
pharmaceutical industry, you know. So I think as far as we go, there's there's hope in terms of production and access to the vaccine. But then I'm kind of worried about the people on the periphery of society and, you know, those countries who are, to say the least, you know, struggling. But then, yeah, the COVID-19 vaccine being developed by the University of Oxford produces a similar immune response in both older and young adults and adverse responses were lower among the elderly. British drug maker AstraZeneca PLC said on Monday, the news that older people get an immune response from the vaccine is positive because the immune system weakens with age and older people are the most at risk of dying from the virus. The Financial Times reported earlier that the vaccine being developed by Oxford and AstraZeneca triggers positive, triggers protective sorry, antibodies and T-cells in older age groups among those at most at risk of the virus. Immunogenicity, blood tests carried out on a subset of all the participants echoed data released in July, which showed that which showed the vaccine generated robust immune responses in a group of healthy adults aged between 18 and 55. The Financial Times reported the vaccine is likely to provide protection for about a year, CEO Pascal Soriot said in, in June. So I think, first of all, you know, great achievements. It's, it's working for young and old, and that's the important bit right there, because as much as, you know, the young may not be as vulnerable, but then there are those who are, you know, have certain kinds of sicknesses, you know, dietary mm-hmm. dietary shortcomings, which might make them more vulnerable and whatnot. So I think that's, that's also important. And also the fact that in the older age, older age groups, it has that response whereby it triggers the protective antibodies and those T cells. So I think that in itself is quite, quite interesting and quite good news to be honest, because as we know, as we've seen, by and large, those who have been most affected and those who have died from the virus are those who are, are older and those who are, you know, on who are vulnerable in a sense in terms of the sicknesses they lie within their bodies. So for me, I it's, it's a positive step because if this can, you know, get going as soon as possible, then it means that, you know, we can re- return to some sense of normality. You can also get to travel abroad and finally be in school physically as well. So I think there's quite a lot to think about here. But also, as I said, we also have to think about issues of access, issues of distribution, issues of pricing as well. Mm. But yeah, we've got two things. So it's you, you, we really, you know, we have the cake, but then we can't eat it as well because we have the good news of the vaccine does work. But then the question now that then becomes distribution and access. What do you think? You know what? It's going to be interesting, and um, the fact that um, a cure of a vaccine is on the horizon is exciting. But it also worries me about the nation that um, that provides the vaccine, that comes out with the vaccine, because you're going to see a monopoly, right? And how long is it going to take for an Africa to get that vaccine? You know, it's going to go to the highest bidder. And we're going to see an instance of who gets what, you know. Uh, so I hope that a South African company kind of makes this, you know. Uh, it's a pity we don't have a pharmace- pharmaceutical SOE. Um, <laughs> the party was probably not interested, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's not too exciting for them. So, I mean, if, I mean, just imagine, right? Just imagine, put on your imagination hat. Right? Just imagine we had a pharmaceutical SOE now, 
and they came out with that vaccine. Even after we fired all of our top medical uh, professors and everybody, you know, because we don't like reading anyway. Um, let's just just imagine we had and we found this vaccine. If we sold to each country for a million dollars, we'd get out of the hole. I mean, just do the math: a million dollars to every country around the world. I mean, that's that's quick maths, quick money. Get ourselves out of this hole. I mean, that's the kind of ingenuity you want, you know, that African ingenuity. Why? But, you know, the NC wants to fire all of our top medical researchers, those in the process of doing a vaccine trial because they don't like the rhetoric. So, I mean, yeah. I, I get what you're saying. I'm just worried about the accessibility for the common man it's going to be, you know, Um it's the same thing, you know, how long did it take for HIV antiretrovirals to be uh, given to the public? You know, it took years. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So w- how long is it going to take for our common man to get it, you know? So exactly. I think um, whoever gets it needs to be careful. But then you're going to have Trump or the next American president uh, buying 10 shares and so forth and so forth. You know, it's going to be the same people that bought N94 masks in like stockpiles that are going to have this virus and vaccine and try to make a buck out of it. So, yeah, it's good that we're getting it, but it's going to open up a whole new can of worms. You're going to have knockoff versions. We're going to see side effects and so forth. Yeah, We don't know. You know what? People are saying that there's no side effects to Corona. Some people are saying that you might get cancer from it. Some people will have not got gotten their sense of taste and smell back. So, you know what? We don't know. And we need to stop acting like we know. Because nothing exactly. is well ascended. You know, all that I know is that I know nothing. Yeah, uh, that's, my, that's my motto, you know. I, I, I don't know anything. I just roll with it, you know. And we need, yeah. to, we need to learn how to adapt and think on our feet. Yeah. So if the virus comes, that's perfect. But, I mean, I think... We, we're living in a society now where we just roll with it, you know? Mm. You look at you, like, we, 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 we had our first uh, couple of weeks of um, lockdown, right? And now we're back, to square, we're back to square one now where we have to work, we have to go study now. You know, the show must go on. Regardless if the world's locked up, the show must go back on, you know? Um, and we're seeing everybody having to... Czech Republic's locked down again now. Spain's locked down. Uh, yeah. England's going back into another lockdown. Everybody's going into another lockdown. And you've got to wonder, are we going to go into another lockdown? But also, the, how do we adapt to this, you know? Um, I know you spoke about vaccines, and yeah, I'm talking about lockdown. But, I mean, they go hand yeah. in hand, you know? Yeah. Um, we need to stop waiting. It's like we like waiting for somebody to give us relief. Okay, yeah. the vaccine. We don't know when the vaccine is coming, right? They still need yeah. to clinically test it. It needs to sit for three months to see the side effects and so forth and so forth. We need to come up with solutions to say, okay, cool. Why aren't we pushing? You know, Rogan always talks about this, right? You know, as on YouTube, you're banned if you recommend that you just need a healthy diet and you need to go exercise regularly. Like that, the HWHO has not said anything about exercising regularly, eating healthy, none of that, eating your, uh, drinking vitamin C and so forth. They've said none of that because yeah. there's too many fat fucks walking around thinking that it's okay to be fucking 200 kilograms and so forth. You know, if you are over, overweight, if you're eating shit, obviously you're going to get sick and you're going to die. 
So, I mean, yeah. obviously, the, just eat healthy and exercise. I'm not saying being tip-top shape as an athlete, but, I mean, maybe just fucking eat a salad once in a while, you know? <laughs> yeah, man. And I, I, I think, you know, the high number of people with comorbidities just points to one of the failures of globalization because, you know, there's easy access to food you know, through your McDonald's, your Burger King, and all these fast food chains that have, you know, spanned and spawned across the world. They've just made, you know, becoming unhealthy so easy. And then throw in the rise of deliveries and throw in the rise of apps and, you know, easy access to everything and the low prices. And, yeah, you have yourself a recipe for disaster. And at, regarding weights, we, as far as Africa goes, one of those countries with a, a huge weight problem, and I think you just need to step outside to see the effects and the reality of our weight problem as a country. Mm. But anyway, just to get back to the point of distribution, access, and the rest of it, I think in terms of access, we, we might be lucky enough because I remember at one point in time, I think it was in May, but at the height of COVID-19, Wits University in Gauteng, mm. South Africa, was, was, run, was running a trial of this particular vaccine that is mm. being developed by the Oxford team. So I think in terms of that, you might get access to the to the vaccine on that basis because we were one of the first countries to run a trial of the vaccine outside of the UK because I remember it was the UK, it was the USA, it was Brazil, it was us. And I don't remember who was running the, the trial in Asia as well. And to just stick to South Africa, so what I did was I pulled up a list of some of the bigger pharmaceutical companies in, in South Africa and we all know how big of a player South Africa mm. is when it comes to pharmaceuticals and pharmacy in, in, in Africa and especially in the Southern region as well you know your Mozambique Zim, mm. and the rest of it so I'm sure we we we, we know at least most of, of these names on this list Aspen, you all know Aspen I think you've all had some cough syrup from Aspen before, at Ingram, we've we, we know word about at Ingram as well Sanofi, mm. I do not know of, I won't lie. Novitzis, I don't know of. Pfizer, mm. I know it's, a, it's an American company, but also operates in South Africa as well. So that, that also increases capacity to produce the Sipler, which is also another company that can give us, you know, capacity to produce more of, of the vaccine. This Johnson & Johnson, also an American company, I believe, and also operates in the country as well. So the, the point here is it's not if the company is South African or not. The point is infrastructure, because mm. to produce, you need to have infrastructure in place. You can't get the vaccine tonight, then start to build the factory tomorrow morning. You have to have the factories beforehand in order to ensure that you have enough to go around for your population. So there's Johnson and & John Johnson, Merck & Co., there's Bayer, and there's Roche. So I and think it's... Yes, and Sipla. Sipla has mentioned Sipla just before Johnson & Johnson. So the point here is, right, I feel like this is another golden opportunity for us, you know, to become Brick Brother again, especially in the region as well. If you look at our neighbors, you know, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, and Tatas, there's, you know, Zambia and the rest of it. It's another chance for us to become Big Brother again via this vaccine. First of all, we've got an advantage. Be one of the first countries in the world outside of the UK to run trials of the vaccine. That's step number one. So we know how it works. We've got studies on how it works. We have people who've got a deep understanding of how the vaccine works at VITS because they are the ones who are in charge of the trial. That's step number one. So we have 
the expertise now of the vaccine on a local scale. That's the first point. And secondly, now I've mentioned all these companies, Aspen, Pfizer, Zipla, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Et and that points to infrastructure. And if you can get capacity going, and hopefully for, I think for all our sakes, including the government's sake as well, there isn't another lockdown, at least at the levels we saw at the heights of it, by literally not even answer moving, I think we can have the capacity. We can actually start to produce again and produce more than we need, you know, mm. a kind of a surplus to requirements, if you could call it that. And then you can start to export. And I think that in itself could help to kickstart the economy. Yes, yeah. as much as as much as the production process may be automated, but then, you know, these these trucks, not these trucks, this vaccine needs to be tracked, you know, from mm. point A to point B. It needs to be moved around, you know. So in that process, there are there's gas involved, there's a truck driver involved, there's renting a truck involved, there are toll there are tolls involved, you know, there's a number of things. So mm. I think it's an interesting point. But then we'll see how the government plays this because you know we can we can sit around and talk all day, but then it's up to the players to play the game, you know. We can only do so much. And it's going to be interesting to see how it's all, it's all approached when the vaccine does become available. Because as you said, you know, they dismembered the team that was assisting the government in, you know, its projections, its strategy and planning. So there's quite a number of things at play. But I think, it, it again, you know, it's funny how every week when we sit here, we always find opportunities that, pre, that are presented to the country to become, you know, a powerhouse again on the continent. Every week in and week out, we find opportunities. You know, we've spoken about Mozambique. We've spoken about helping Zim. We've spoken about interventions, the military. We've spoken about Transnet. We've spoken about power supply. We have spoken about a number of things that that have been presented to the country in order for the country to again become, you know, a player, a big Mm -hmm. player on the continent, you know, an important player. And obviously, if we cement our dominant, no, I wouldn't call it dominance, but our power rather on the continent, it will then, you know, give us greater global standing. But then it's one of those things. What do you think, man? Uh, the way you're talking, my man, are you trying to lobby to get us a job in government? Are you, are you trying? Is that, what, is that what we're doing? <laughs> well, I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind. You know, I wouldn't mind sitting around and just, you know, reading a newspaper and being paid 1.6 million rand. I wouldn't mind. Yeah, I, I wouldn't mind. I mean, student debt is crippling. Student debt is crippling. Um, yeah, man, like you said, we, I don't know, somebody in government needs to listen to this podcast because we're giving solutions and it's crazy. So I've got a couple of, like, my feed, uh, the list of topics that I wanted to talk about tonight, right? And yeah. there's a couple. Um, I don't think we'll get into all of this. So I yeah. just thought I'd read some headlines to you and then we can just get, and then once those headlines are done, then we'll get to the meaty topics again. So yeah. uh, another article out of the Daily Maverick um, is by Sasha Planting. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, it reads, uh, the 161 million rand SMS, FSCS slaps world's second largest fine on US for Steinoff insider trading. Yeah. Right? So the financial sector Conduct Authority has fined former Steinoff CEO Marcus Yosta 121 million for insider trading relating to the imminent imminent uh, crash in Steinoff shares. The 
FSCA has also fined three other in individuals for insider trading. They sold their sign of shares in response to a warning received from Mark Marcus Yester. This brings the total fine levied, levied to $241 million. Right? It's crazy. So if the three uh, individuals, Dr. Habdus Berger, Martin Swigler, who is uh, Martinez Swigler, who is Yester's driver, and Yester's old friend, the late Oki Ostaisen, do not pay the fines, Yester is liable for the additional amounts of $38 million plus $18 million, making the SMS he sent to them probably the world's most expensive SMS. Just imagine <laughs> that, right? You're warning your friends that your business is about to go under. So that SMS alone is going to cost him $241 million. The, yeah. This is the, the largest penalty imposed by the FSCA for in, insider trading. Insider trading. The next largest is $24 million. It fined the, the Deutsche, Deutsche Bank in 2019. So from $241 million to $24 million. It's crazy, man. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's crazy that people walk around playing around with that kind of money. Anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so then there was another one. Um, so four years on and we, four years of Trump has made the world less safe and the damage might be irreversible. It's an article by CNN uh, by Luke McGee. And he goes on to say that it'll take more than an election for America to regain the trust of its allies after four years of the most norm-shattering U.S. presidency in history. Um, President Donald Trump's administration has rocked confidence in the U.S.-led international order to such an extent the experts fear damage done to global democratic norms could take decades to restore. Uh, from befriending autocratic strongmen to undermining multinational, institu multinational institutions and even questioning the legitimacy of American democracy, Trump presided over a deliberate shift in the reliability of Re Reagan's shining city on a hill. He's normalized things that were taboo. If any other Western leader acted like Trump, they'd be marginalized. As a leader of one of the most powerful nations on earth, he's, he's been able to behave with complete disregard for institutions and norms that rely on good faith and trust in the international community. Undercut, undercutting will be Trump's last, uh, lasting legacy. Perhaps clearest examples of Trump's apparent disdain for democracy can be seen in his admiration for autocrats and authoritarians elsewhere. He's called the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, a friend of mine who's doing a really spectacular job. Uh, he's <laughs> called uh, the North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un, a real leader whom, with whom he gets on really well. Uh, he um, he's congratulated Russia's uh, Vladimir Putin and Turkey's Re Recep Erdogan um, and so forth. Uh, when the President of the United States congratulates authoritarians for winning unfair elections or called genuine dictators his friends, gives, it gives those leaders the propaganda win of an endorsement from a supposed moral leader of the world. When mm. you combine these endorsements with Trump's reduced presence on the world stage, he has created a space for strongmen to behave um, even more aggressively at home and internationally.
you know, Trump has shown little interest in taking autocrats to task, even for grievous abuses. Uh, when J- journalist Jamal Khashoggi was murdered by a Saudi hit squad, Trump gave the Crown's parents a pass, saying the Middle East was a vicious, hostile place. You know, and I, 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 I'll just give the last one. Over the past four years, Trump says Trump has also withdrawn from international agreements and questioned the relevance of international institutions that have historically relied on America's political and financial support. His actions have uh, direct and immediate impact on the reducing the effectiveness of multilateralism. When Trump pulls out the out of the World Health Organization in the middle of a pandemic pandemic and it and accuses of it work of working with China, he risks destroying the long-term credibility of international body, bodies in dealing with global crises. When he pulls out of treaties like the Paris Climate Accord, he reduces the international community's ability to ask a country to stop chopping down trees. If the US is no longer a stakeholder, why should anyone else? So, uh, you know what, right? Say what you like. Um, about Trump, but it's going to leave a lasting legacy. So if he gets reelected, what world are we going to see after these next four years? You know, yeah. Are we, we going to have Christoph and alienated everybody? Or are we going to have allies after this? Is the I mean, is the US going to have allies after this? Right? It's going to be them by themselves, right? And I'm not saying uh, I really want to stray from the idea that America is the perfect example of. A beautiful country because every country has shit and yeah. i think that i don't like the idea of them being the root um leader of the free world because the world isn't free and they've shown it that <laughs> if you look at the abuse that they uh, perpetuate to people in their own country they can give fucked i mean don't know what free world you're talking about but at the same time i think Trump's um, the way Trump has acted has kind of given the UN a kick in the ass, NATO a kick in the ass, WHO. Because these people, me and you have discussed it, right? The UN yeah. is useless. The ICC is useless. I mean, we looked at it. So they need to get away from the facade of pretending to act like the law. You know, when I did my thesis last year, uh, they, you know what? So you get the executive order signed by the American president to declare war and so forth, right? Yeah. But the executive order is only legally binding in America. Nobody challenges that they're taking this executive order and they're placing it on any country they want around the world. I mean, talk about yeah. imperial inclinations, you know? Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's just stupid. And it's going to be interesting because how do you go back now? How do you win allies? And I think... In the same way, this is Trump is both a blessing in disguise because it's going to give these um, institutions like the UN and NATO a chance to rebuild and realize that they can't be exactly. so uh, rely they can't rely on America as much. Exactly. But it's also going to force other people to step up, and I think that void is necessary. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. You took the words out of my mouth, of my mouth there at the end with that point about you know. A chance to rebuild. Those are the words I had exactly. But then, as you say, man, look, look, by and large, for the most part, you know, I'm a Trump kind of guy. I think that's well documented. But then as much as I'm, you know, kind of a Trump guy, 
there's also he has shortcomings you know he's a man he's human like us and i'm not making excuses here because there's a number of things he's done he said you know he's proposing to do that are questionable to say the least and as you say it's going to leave a lasting effect on international politics and it's interesting because now we're at a time whereby you know there just seems to be this this void you know there's flip-flopping around world leadership and no one's really stepping up to the plate and there seems to be no you know i know like america is not perfect but then by and large you know they've been the quote-unquote leaders of the free world and for for the most part you know they've played the role they've you know had they brought about stability through that role I know obviously a number of things have been questionable, you know, such as, you know, certain interventions in certain parts of the world, and those are all documented as well. But then I, I, I think now, as you, as you also pointed out, that Trump's acts towards autocrats, people who stamp down and clamp down on human rights and allow no freedoms at all in their countries, it gives them the, the, the propaganda they need to keep going. And for me, that's interesting because now we are getting to see these countries, you know, play a greater a greater role in international politics. Either a using the propaganda they get from Trump, or b using the voids that are being left by Trump. So we are, we have seen how you know China is stepping up, and other countries are stepping up as well and filling the voids that are being left by the USA. And worryingly enough, it's it's that most of the countries that are stepping up are countries that are do not. Or, yeah, that do not, by and large, you know, have any room for human rights on their land. So it's worrying, it's troublesome. But as you said, it also gives us a chance to really, you know, hit crisis points, you know, rock bottom and say, here we are now. We are, at, you know, the bottom of the barrel. What do we do now? Because the only way out is up. So I think we now need then to start thinking critically really and say what kind of world do we want to see in the next 10 20 30 years assuming we'll still be alive so there's quite a lot to think about and i i i think what we can take from trump is that you know you you don't make national decisions on twitter and secondly you when you make decisions you need to consult those who you work with because we've seen how he has not only like pulled away from you know, the Paris Agreement pulled away from WHO, but then it's also been undermining health experts within the country, such as Dr. Anthony Fauci. And that in itself puts the whole, you know, medical attempt to curb COVID-19 at risk, especially in the USC, where there's around a population of about 300 million. So there's quite a lot to be concerned about as far as Trump goes. And I know that right now my my thoughts are like here, there, and everywhere. But then these are are just some of the concerns that I have when it comes to Trump. And worryingly, I think the the most notable thing that we'll see coming out of this whole situation of Donald Trump is the rise of nationalism, the rise of protectionism, and the rise and the threats of the use of force. And you know, as, as much as Trump may always make the threat, but then the guy from the other countries learning from Trump might go beyond making the threat and actually making use of violence itself. And this then takes me to what you said about the 
national order or the executive order, as you called it, which is signed with the president. And it just shows you how, as much as we think we have moved on and become more civilized and more humane and, you know, adheres to these international norms and whatnot, but then, as you said, this executive order is only applicable or legal in the country of in which it is signed, rather, right? But then you can't enforce this order on another country and, and its people as well. It takes you back to the papal bull. And that's from, what, 300 years ago, 300, yeah. 400 years ago. Same, same, same kind of, 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 you know, thought process. Papal bull, executive order, same kind of thought process. So we have to, I, I think now is the time whereby we can, We've hit the ground, you know, we're at ground zero. There's, there's, we can't go any lower than this. This is it. We have to start, you know, building up again and start thinking about things in, in, in a different way, in a different way. And for me, irrespective of who gets elected as president this coming week, be it Trump, be it Biden, it makes no difference because as much as we may think they're different, they're actually not. Trump's, you know. I think the only difference is delivery. You know, Trump is kind of brute. You know, he just calls a spade a spade. Sometimes he calls, you know, he has spade more than a spade, but then I won't go there. And if you look at Biden and Kamala Harris, they kind of have, you know, protectionist leftist thoughts, whereby, you know, everything that's left is correct. And if you're coming from the right, you're wrong. So we're still going to see the same thing. We're still going to see divisions again, whereby with Trump, we're seeing him pull away from the people on the left. And if Biden wins and Kamala, then we're going to see them pull away from the people on the right. So I think we can say for the next eight years odd, the world is kind of fucked irrespective of who wins the next elections. Because as I've said, Trump is pulling away from the left. And we've seen how the left has, you know, reacted with BLM, and looting and torching and whatnot. Same thing. If Camilla and Biden pull away from the people on, on the right and they don't try to make concessions and try to make amends and try to find a middle ground, then you're gonna see again the rise of the rise of, of you know the Proud Boys, the KKK and all those groups. So I, I feel like it's a lose-lose kind of situation. I don't see any light in, at the end of this tunnel. And as you, you as you rightly put it, man, you know. The U.S. is not some perfect example of how to run a country. They have their own problems from race to corruption to invasions to their position in the world. But yeah, I don't know. Any any thoughts? Because I think I, I've said a lot and I feel like I've said nothing as well because my thoughts are kind of everywhere and nowhere at the same time. So yeah, let me not, you know, run around in, in mm. circles anymore. Yeah. Um, I, it's going to be interesting. I think we need to leave this and prepare this because we don't know what's going to happen. Be it Trump, uh, Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, I don't know. Yeah, we we're gonna have to see the outcome and of uh, and what's going to fall out from this. You know, either way, these are gonna be shit. So let's just roll with it. Um, let's just. I just wanted to do, uh, before I hand over to you. Um, I want to talk about my friend Ace Magashulu. Right. Oh boy! <laughs> right, so um, so I'll first start with uh, another article. I see also on Daily Maverick. I feel like everything I got today was of Daily Maverick, but anyway, <laughs> it's by Stephen Krutus. Mzwandile uh, Masina steps into Ace Magashulu's upheaval, fires off another race-based salvo. 
Uh, it's on the 20th, it was posted on the 21st of October 2020. Puzzling as they were, Eric Cooley, Mayana, Mayor, Mzwalini, Masina's tweets on Tuesday revealed a pol- politician running out of logical options. As speculation continues about the possible arrest of ANC Secretary General Ace Magashulo, more evidence is coming to light about the still, uh, about the still alleged corruption in the free, free state during his tenure there. A previously unpublished account of how money meant to help people in the province was spent on Bentleys and Ferraris revealed the intent of these projects and the shocking callousness of those who benefited. Right. Uh, at the same time, uh, Magashulu's eight uh, allies are trying to mount a defense for them, some, sometimes telegraphing their intentions. One of their allies, Mayor Masine, also known as a friend of Julius Malema, is pushing the claim that black people must unite on this issue. While the Free State ANC is also backing Magashulu, right? Yeah. In the long run, uh, Magashulu's allies' willingness to get into the trenches may uh, may not save them from the heavy artillery. On Wednesday, Scorpio uh, published a detailed account where the money received by businessman Celo Radebe for the Free State uh, Asbestos Audit Project went. As Peter Lewis Myberg explained, the huge payments that were made in just a few days were spent on top of the range cars and a house. The amount of money spent on the actual project, which was intended to help many, was minuscule in comparison to what was spent on luxury for a few. It is this kind of reporting that is changing the narrative, along with the Zondos Commission's newfound spring in its step, as it lays bare the true facts about the depth of corruption in South Africa. It also gives uh, rise to the intense spe- speculation that Magashulu might soon be arrested. It is well known that Magashulu himself is concerned about this, and he has confirmed these worries to IOR. This has nudged uh, some, public- some to publicly state which side they're on. Meanwhile, uh, the- there's still the ANC National Executive-, Executive Committee's line in the sand decision to de- consider, which saw the NEC deciding that those in implicating corruption must step aside. So far, very very few people have done so. On Tuesday night, Masina Masina tweeted, black people must unite. These arrests are targeting uh, black professionals and black businesses. We need to stand up and be counted. Some whites have been stealing with impunity and they have not been arrested. It's now or never, right? Mm. The lack of logic in Massina's tweet, is earth-shattering. It is not clear what he <laughs> means by it is now or never. It looks like an obvious call for action after corruption-related arrests. But what kind of action? He followed it with another tweet containing a picture of a spreadsheet drawn up to look like a bank payment with the name Dekwana. Uh, yeah. Right. Dekwana is a former state MEC who testified uh, at the commission against Magashulu and his men. This was a, a clear attempt to implicate Deguana as a receiving some form of payment for his des- testimony. Masina's claim is completely without evidence. A picture of a spreadsheet on a computer is not accepted as evidence by any court and could have been drawn up by anyone. Sounds like Trump right there, eh? Uh, as, exactly. as has been pointed out, by, out to him by many, there have been several white people arrested in connection with corruption. Two of them were involved in the looting of VBS. The state capture era, which saw billions stolen at Transnet, ESCOM, and so many other places. Um, and there's been a rather diverse rogues gallery, which includes Brian Molefe, Eric Wood, Anna G. Singh. If I eat... History teaches teaches us if our history teaches us anything, it is that corruption is colorblind. 
Worse than a Masina's basis claim is his presumption that people who are of the same race must all think alike. Mm. Really? On what basis does he come to this conclusion? And how does he explain, just for a start, the difference in attitudes between Julius Malema and Musi Mamani, or Prince Mashele and Guide Matanshi, or Joe Biden and Donald Trump? It is a contention that is insulting to all human beings everywhere. Right? Um, but while insulting, it is also telling. Masina has nothing else to grasp. No other weapon, no other argument, no other place to go but the depths of cross crass racism. It is a sign of a desperate man who has run out of options. His tweets also raise other questions. Right? Uh, the movement to which he belongs, the NC, describes itself as a non-racial movement. Does the party believe that people of the same race all think alike? If it does, is Messina creating a situation in which the NC must say it does? Or must he just accept what he says and ignore it? Messina has previously tweeted material that would appear to fall foul of Latuli House. Um, I don't know. At the end of May, he tweeted that he agreed with Malema that we should have we should let the white economy collapse. He appeared to have saying that he preferred the policy of the EFF leader to that of his own party. Still months later, this is still amazing. A mayor and a regional leader of a ruling political party expressing a public preference for the policy of a competing political organization. Even the ANC could not withstand it and issued a public statement rebuking him while not taking further action. Now is he, now he again is trained against the ANC policy, this time on non-racialism. What will the, will the party react? I don't know. Over to you, man. I, I don't know about these people. Look, man, it's it's a mouthful. I'll tell you that. It's you know, ever since Ace, you know, came into the public eye, it's been trouble, trouble, trouble. He's an ace of trouble, I'll tell you that. And him and his handies and his cronies have just been, you know, running rampant with this whole corruption thing. And to get to the part of, you know, black people must unite and whatnot. Because this mm. is targeting businesses. For me, it makes no sense, you know. Mm. And fortunately for me, I have had time to read on this and think about all these things, you know, throughout the weekend and and prior to this, because, you know, he's spoken about ACE a number of times. And it makes no sense to just say we must unite for the hell of uniting. It makes no sense because what's the use in us uniting behind, let's say, ACE or one of his cronies? When we know very well that the same ace and his cronies are the guys who are taking money that's meant for housing, meant for water, meant for sanitation, food parcels and grants and whatnot, taking that kind of money and that four or five million rands and choosing to buy a Porsche or a Bentley or whatever the kind the car is and not helping the people. And and above this, what's the use in saying we must unite behind a business that's ripping the straight the state? and stealing from the state. It, it makes no sense. And I don't care if the owner is black, white, colored, Indian, whatever the case is. If you're, if you're stealing from the state, that's treason. You're stealing from your own people. That's as good as killing the president. You know, it's, it, it makes no sense for me to say we must unite then behind you. And it also shows you the, the importance of race in the whole thing, you know, and you know, and when the shit hits the fan, you know, and the rubber meets the road, people start now to, you know, make, you know, ra- racial claims. These are these are targetings or whatever the case is. We're being targeted and whatnot and whatnot. 
and that's that's far from the case that's far from the case because now as as you clearly stated you know the Sonda commission is making headway they are you know they have a lot of people shaking in their boots if as it were a lot of people are worried and worry points one thing it points to guilt and we know where there's smoke there's fire so i i think you know, props to the guys that's on the commission, the guy, the guys at the SIU, the guys at the NPA, and all these other the Hawks, you know, subs maybe, you know, the forfeiture units and whatnot, SARS and whatnot. But I, I, I think you know, as much as a lot has been done, there's still a lot more that needs to be done, and I think we first need to give credit where it's due. You know, they've done a great job so far. You know, they haven't, you know removed all the weeds but then they have removed plenty of them and they've got many shaking to get out get out of the ground so that's that's important but there's still a lot that needs to be done you know ace and friends mm. and especially with with the nc having stated that if you're involved in any corrupt actions in any corrupt acts step aside and we saw that only a small number of people chose mm. to heed that call so there's still a lot that needs to be done, you know. I, I've heard a number of stories of, of people, you know, making use of, of tenderpreneurship, if I could call it that. And it, it's it's baffling, you know. I was reading this one article just before we started today, and it was speaking about the flawed understatement, flawed procurement system at ESCOM, and how at one point ESCOM bought a mop, a wooden mop, for 200,000 rand, for me, it was just like what a wooden mop for two hundred thousand rand. What the hell? But yeah, it it it, it nonetheless it, it points to the importance of. I think it goes back to what we said last week. You know, the question of leadership. You know, and mm. I think we are we are seeing now the leadership that is capable and is because capability is one thing, but the willingness to follow through on the capability is the second thing. So now we are seeing leadership that is capable and actually willing to follow up on these kinds of, you know, of allegations, these kinds of suspicions and claims. And it's 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 encouraging, but I think, you know, there's still room to clean up. And But for now, I'll say credit to it's true. We've seen changes at ESCOM. You know, we've seen how slowly but surely ESCOM is becoming an actual business. We mm. have seen how in governments there's been this willingness to take on corruption head on. And yeah. It's it's a okay. balancing it's a balancing act, yeah. But then it's a number of things at play, but you can tell me what else you you think about this. No man, it's 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 gonna it's drawing to a sand, you know. Um we're coming to a point where you know we can't hide from the corruption. People want to know because we need the money now. People are asking where the money is. That's why I see the Zondu Commission. They're actually starting I feel like they've got a new spark in this step, right? But at the same time, it's like uh, just indulge me, right, for a second. Put on your conspiracy hat on. Yeah, they they realize cool. that somebody's got to cover up. So they're getting rid of a couple of big fish. But I mean, when last have you heard the word Gupta being spoken about? Ah. Gupta, Zuma, they, they've all disappeared. The big fish have gone. Now we're just tackling medium-sized fish, you know? Yeah. And that's the problem, you know? We, we don't know where to start. The ANC is such a big organization and how do you get some a, a, a party to clean house when those people are still in charge you know 
Um, so it's interesting. I think the Zonda Commission is doing good work, but at the same time, I don't think it's enough. And I think it's more of a uh, saving face thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like, uh, um, so the Zonda Commission asked uh, Transnet about the irrational decision to reinstate Sia Bonga Gama and to pay his legal fees in the court case against the SOE, which he lost. So they. Are you shitting me? Are you no. shitting me? What the fuck? For him, it's simply uh, Chief, Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zonda on Monday, uh, 19th October, said, I've never seen anything like this. For him, it was simply too much. Charles Nett had paid the legal fees connected to a disgraced executive, Sia Bonga Gama's attack on the rail port, uh, rail port and pipeline company in the High Court in 2009, right? Uh, in paying more than. They paid more than one billion to Gama's legal representatives. Transnet scored an effective own goal and at the premium. Additionally, Transnet paid the uh, paid the legal fees Gama cured during an internal disciplinary process at the company, which he pleaded guilty to three main charges. It's it's crazy, man. I I I don't know what to tell you, right? How do you you fire somebody because they've done and they 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 pleaded guilty to three charges of corruption and then you yeah. still pay for the legal fees and then they you give them the seventy five percent back pay which amounts to ten million it, it makes fuck all sense it's baffling baffling mm. but yeah see this is what this is what I mean when I say a lot has been done and props and you know credits where it's due. But then there remains hordes of room for improvement, you know, by the bucket load, by the bus load, actually. So, yeah, it's it's interesting, it's interesting times. But I, Can I just leave you with one quote? 426,000 that Gama owed Transnet. Transnet, this is what Zander says. 426,000 that Mr. Gama owed Transnet. You said they must stop trying to recover that. Why did you do that, Zander? Makwanzi stammered through his reply. At the time, the view was that even uh, the view was even that cost needed to be part of the settlement settlement discussion. Zondu grew irate. Why? Why? Because that's a question you would you would have to you would have asked anybody who told you that. You would have said why. An awkward pause followed. Chairman, I do not necessarily ask the question why. Makwanzi replied meekly. But it is obvious. It is. That is the obvious question that the director of a company should ask in such a situation, said an irate Zondo. I mean, if the if the chairperson doesn't know why they spent 426, told them to stop searching for the 426,000, right? Why? Yeah. I mean, you want to cut costs as a business owner. I mean, exactly. are, they pl- are they playing with that much money that 400, half a million is not... A, is small change, you know. Is that's the type of shit that you have lying around in your car door, you know, to give yeah. car guards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You see, that that's that's what it goes back to what I said earlier on about we can't just rally behind you just because you're black or just because mm-hmm. you're colored, just because you're white or Indian, whatever the case is. We must rally behind you because your cause makes sense. We can't just say, oh, you know, this guy, he's he's black, he's being targeted, Raymond Zonda and the rest of it. No, it has. We, there must be a case for us to actually rally behind you, see? So mm. now in these cases whereby, you know, people are treating half a million rand as, you know, as change, as, you know, something mm. to give to a car guard, as, as you put it, it's, it's one of those things whereby it's unacceptable 
And what kind of, 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 of a business operator are you if you're not willing to ask a three a, a three a three letter question, you know, a one word question. Mm. Why? It's only three yeah. letters. W H and Y. Why man, it, it baffles me. Let, let, let me just provide some good news again, man. And this is is relating to electricity, you know. We've spoken about electricity, I think, every week that we've had this this podcast and we I think it's a th- reason and you know understandably why <laughs> that we've spoken about electricity so much because you know it's it's a cornerstone of any any modern any modern country and it's a cornerstone for you know growth development a cornerstone for GDP a cornerstone to inform you know investments and developments and I think it's it's important that you follow up on on issues of electricity and i've got this article here that relates to issues of improvements you know in in our electricity supply and if you ask me in my book any improvements as far as electricity goes is an important improvement and encouraging one because if those improvements take place if those improvements are followed up upon and if all goes according to plan and you know there's obviously going to be hiccups here and there you know it's humans at work here you know you all make mistakes here and there but then if you try to minimize those mistakes because any any mistake in 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 these conditions could easily be costly but then i think again it points to how much you know the states is trying to improve things and i think this also points to the kind of leaders that have been appointed at soes you know with andre director and the rest of it but then there's still a lot left to be desired with other soes as well and you know with the departments of public enterprises remaining the main shareholder in most soes and you know pravin Gordon running the show at most soes and calling analysts crazy to put it mildly and not not so there's still a lot left to be desired but then anyway let me not beat around the bush here's the good news and it refers to one of our power stations so the title reads boost for SA's electricity grid as second usili units comes online and that's from the Sowetan live the author was not listed or stated so SA's electricity supply is being bolstered by the Gusile power unit state power stations unit 2 achieving full commercial operation on Thursday the units at the plant between Emalahleni and Dalmas and Bumalanga now moves to being part of ESCOM's generation fleet contributing up to 800 megawatts to the power grid from the project from project status where it has been tested for over the past 16 months said ESCOM this becomes the second unit at Gusile to enter commercial operation, with units four having attained commercial operation status in 2017. ESCOM said the construction, testing, and optimization activities on the remaining four units, some of which are currently being currently providing intermittent power to support the grid, is progressing well. Commercial operation status ensures technical compliance to statutory safety and legal requirements. ESCOM has not implemented rotational load shedding since September, good news, as it has managed to meet SA's electricity needs with the minimal use of open cycle gas turbines. ESCOM said it had focused on conducting reliability maintenance 
on the rest of the power stations, which has aimed at improving the performance of its aging generation fleet. So, as as as, as I said, as as my preamble was, that you know we are seeing this change and focus mm. at at SOEs and this, these improvements in terms of how these you know these SOEs are being run, and I think. ESCOM at this point in time, you know, stands head and shoulders above the rest in terms of its turnaround. Yes, there remains a number of problems. Yes, there remains a number of questions. But then by and large, there have been a number of improvements in ESCOM and these have been quite encouraging. And I think we are seeing the accelerated, you know, bringing on the accelerated completion rather of these power stations and bringing on of these units onto the electricity grid. And as I said, if all works out perfectly, we should be seeing, you know, an improvement, not only in electricity supply, but then also to, excuse me, to our nation's GDP as well. But yeah, ESCOM Kusile Unit 2 is online. It's achieved full commercial operation status. It's, it's on. Do you think this is the corner we needed to turn or do you think this is just, you know, smoke and mirrors the problems that are, are within ESCOM are beyond, you know, just bringing on, bringing on of of one unit. What do you think? I think your boy is cleaning house, my man. You know, you you're a big fan of your boy there, so yeah. I think your boy is cleaning house. Um, and it's a, it's a step, you know, as as sign in the right direction. So I don't think this is the be all and end all. I think it's too early to tell, but um, I think it's a step in the right direction. Um. We, like you said, uh, it's going to be slowly getting better, you know. We're not having to worry yeah. about it. I mean, touch wood, we haven't had a load shedding fiasco in a, in a yeah. couple of Kind of weeks, forgot so. about it. Yeah, but you know, it's like it's the, it's like that annoying girl, for, girl that just like keeps texting you like, ah, they just pop up sometimes, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens, but I, I like what he's doing. And, yeah, um, yeah. I think it could be a right step. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how ESCOM balances the rise of uh, renewable energy at the moment. So it's going to see. Yeah. Um, and also, I think I it's it's quite interesting that ESCOM hasn't uh, looked at, you know, opening their own uh, solar farms, you know. I, I don't know why they haven't, you know, this is like uh, joining, you know, finding ways to adapt, right? Yeah, we, we see yeah. a shortage of uh, uh, coal and so forth and so forth. Why haven't? Why have they not explored wind turbines or yeah. um, solar farms? You know, so yeah. I think that's maybe under his direction we we can see a rise of that because I mean yeah. that the, you know what ESCOM is waiting to become uh, un unundated. You know, they want to be outdated. So I think uh, we just need to wait until they're. Um, I think they need. We just need. They need to step up and find another way to stay relevant. You know. So yeah. I think that's another way your boy can, you know, make an impact yeah. and create a legacy for himself. Yeah, yeah. You know. That that's my thoughts on that. You know. Yeah. Allow me to to use that ta that tangent to actually, you know, build on that point of renewable energy as well, and just to, you know, build as I said. So there was a study conducted by scholars at UCT. And it looked at how much ESCOM needs to transition from, you know, coal to renewable energy, so wind and solar. And the title reads, ESCOM needs 178 billion rands to switch to renewables, 
and that's this was in my my broadband so i'm just going to give you a rundown of, of this article to show that there's actually capacity we i think we have if we can give 10 billion rands to SAA, right, to throw down the drain, I'm sure we can waste another 100 billion rands trying to save our power supply as a country. So it's it's interesting because also this comes in light of, you know, ESCOM CEO Andre Dereta and the president himself, Cyril Ramaphosa, announcing the allowing of private producers, power suppliers, to provide at least 30% of the nation's electricity using renewables, which I think, as I said, last weekend, weeks before, that competition is good for development, for, you know, innovation and whatnot. But then the article reads, South Africa needs a, needs a climate finance transaction of 178 billion rands or about 11 billion US dollars to help the country transition from coal to renewable energy and to soften the blow for communities dependent on the on the mining and use of fossil fuel, a University of Cape Town study said. South Africa, though state utility ESCOM Holdings, SOC LTD, is almost entirely dependent on coal for its electricity, the country produces, wait for this, the country produces the same quantity of greenhouse gases as the UK, which has an economy eight times larger than our country. So I think that in itself just points to the need to transition to renew to renewables as in yesterday, because you can't be producing the same amounts of greenhouse gases as the UK, but then yet have an economy that's eight times smaller. It makes no sense. I think it just points to the need to transition as in yesterday. The study envisions a climate finance transaction of 11 billion US dollars, the largest and most significant of its kind that will channel funds toward the accelerated phase out of coal-fired power stations, keeping ESCOM solvents as it decarbonizes, the university said in a press release on Tuesday about the research. The funds would also support the communities and workers affected by the shift away from coal. South Africa's eastern Pumalanga province is heavily dependent on coal mining and coal-fired power plants for employment. Now, here's the beauty of this whole thing, right? Because when, when, you, when you speak about solar, when you speak about, you know, wind, people ask, yeah, sure, we can, we can build, you know, your solar farms, your wind farms and whatnot, but then it has to be on land. And how much land will all these projects occupy? And here's the beauty of this. South Africa would only need to use 0.0025 of its land mass to generate enough solar power to meet its energy needs, the study said. The country has suffered intermittent power cuts due to inadequate generation capacity since 2008. I think two things are important here. First of all, it's the, well, three things actually. First of all, it's the amount of money needed. In my books, if... If, if, if you know guys treat half a million rand as pocket change, I think 178 billion rand is not that they're not that much to spend on trying to decarbonize a country and save a country's power supply, right? Secondly, it's the land mass required, 0.0025. I'll say it's less than half a percent. It is 0.0025% of land mass required to get this up and running. I'll say just one more time for the doubters. It's 0.0025, less than half a percent of land mass. So if questions of, of land are, are, are out of the window, out the window, poof, there it goes, don't get that baby back. 
And I think third and most important is that the study realizes that when you move away from coal, you're not just decarbonizing only, but then there are also communities affected that rely on, you know, coal mining, coal supplies and whatnot. So as as the study says that the $11 billion would, it would be used for shifting away from coal, but then also helping these communities to remain sustainable and remain alive while the country moves away from coal. And look, again, you you were the first one to bring this up, I think about two weeks ago, that time and again, our country is always playing catch up. But yet we have, you know, the people who, who think, the people with the knowledge, the people with the expertise, the people who know how to get things going. Look, man, if we were willing to to borrow four billion, four about four billion dollars from the World Bank, yeah, the World Bank or IMF, one of the two, I kind of forgot. And we then spent of that four billion dollars, you know, money on corruption, giving people money for PPE equipment, you know, selling a mask for four hundred rand. We gave people money for, you know, tenders. We built out SAA. In my book, in my book, right, $11 billion is not much. It is not much in my book. So I think it's interesting to see. And I just want to get your thoughts on this because, like, this is this is literally, you know, when someone says, I can help you with your assignments, right? Then they give you the question and the whole answer. They type it out for you. They give you the question. They say, here's the question. The question is one, two, three, four. The answer is A, B, C. You just have to copy and paste the email and submit and put your name at the top. Student number, you're good to go. Your thoughts, sir, this is literally the question and the answer. We can decarbonize. We can move away from coal and also support those communities while doing so. And I think if we can go beyond just moving away and maintaining our own power needs. As you said last week, we can again become Big Brother. I think in this podcast alone, we've presented two opportunities to become Big Brother again. We first spoke about the COVID-19 vaccine, and now speaking again about power supply. I know that Zim owes us money for, for energy. I know that Zim owes us money for the work we've done on their planes. They owe us a technical a bit of cash. A bit of you know a couple billion couple billion rand nothing much, you know half a million half a million rand is pocket change so who cares, couple billion rand that Zim owes us for the work done on their the work done on their planes by SA Technical, but the point is here, moving away from coal, 178 billion rands is needed the price is fair, the land mass required is, is extremely low, and three it caters and it and looks after all people your thoughts sir. What you said, the line must but let's take it first. The EFF won't allow that. All the black people they want all the land, regardless of where it is. No matter. So if an airport is built on a piece of land, they want it. If a dam is built on it, they want it. So we will not have any solar farms. We will not have it because the land must go to the people. Now that that socialist piece is gone, yeah. Fucking, uh, you know, <laughs> like you said, let us be big brother. You know, and yeah. I think. You know, I was under the impression when Cyril came into power, this guy's a businessman. He's got a couple million billion in the bar in the bank. I thought, brother, you know, we're gonna get brother-in-law involved. You know, brother-in-law's got money. Uh-huh. You know, let's think like businessmen. You know, and that's the same yeah. thing what Americans thought about Trump. You know, this guy's got a couple million in the bank. Let's, you know, you know, 
you'll help the business, right? And as a businessman, you need to, if you want to stay on top of the game, you see, oh, there's a niche there, we go start a business there. There's a niche there, let's start a business there, right? So he's got so, he's in such a rich circle of friends, you know? Like, you don't even need government money, right? Why don't you tell your friends, listen here, right? Instead of awarding a tender, here's a business for you, and then you sell your electricity back to the government. No, everybody has to first receive it. And why don't you tell brother-in-law, listen here, buddy, why don't you start a solar farm? You know, yeah. him, uh, uh, Mutepe and, uh, fuck, what's that guy? Uh, they bought the, no, no, they bought uh, Rupert, Rupert. They bought the whole, uh, 50% of the Bulls rugby company, right? So they got yeah, money yeah, yeah. lying around. They bought the Bulls. And they spend a lot of money. Like the Bulls is looking intense. They spend a lot of money buying world class players, right? So here's my thing. Why why are we not saying, listen, instead of giving our tenders, here's a niche. Why don't you go do that? And then maybe we can offer a center. Instead of saying, let's give our give the like, you know, our extremely wealthy people a chance to say, listen, you want to cut tax? Invest in this, do this so that we can get this, you know? It's like I don't know if he, the moment he entered the presidency, stopped being a businessman. Because, like, if, like, I, I don't claim to be a businessman, but I see, okay, cool, there's a need for it. So we build this, right? So forth, right? If I can see that, you know, uh, on campus, there's a need for a bar, right? I yeah. will go and, and open a bar and, you know, so forth and so forth, because I'll make money. But I feel like the, our government doesn't want to make money, they just want to spend money. Uh, yeah. I think it's like they've got this baller complex. We're living uh, a Gucci uh, lifestyle on a KFC budget, you know. So <laughs> um, there's that. Like, you know, you said here's the opportunity to be a big brother. And it's not going to, in the bigger scheme of things, right, it's not going to cost a lot of money. And it's the land mass isn't going to be taken a lot. So, I, I you know, it, we are playing catch up once again. Here's an opportunity. I mean, especially in summer. Today has been balls hot. How much electricity would we have produced today? <laughs> Just in Cape Town alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 31 degrees, my guy. Fucking hell. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's it's not like the sun will never run out. Every exactly. other country has taken advantage of this, right? Yeah. We don't want to. It's like, oh, the sun's too taboo, you know? It's, it's yeah. like... I feel like there's this mentality that if we go to the sun, we're going to become vegan hippies, you know, hugging the cheese. It's, it's yeah. you know, it's ignorance in a sense. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I don't know what, what to tell you about that. I think it's we need to get involved and I hope your boy at ESCOM realizes the opportunity and so forth. Yeah, he does. He does. He does. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. And then... Um, Secondly, uh, I don't know if you just want to sw- switch gears. Uh, yeah, let's you know, switch. Let's I, ju- switch. I, ju- I just want to give you uh, some... I want people to realize that South Africa is a bullshit. There's other shittier places around the world. <laughs> um, so yeah, going, going to Hong Kong, um, seven pro-democracy legislators have been arrested, right? This is, comes out of The Guardian. So... What happened is uh, the legislators were arrested over May parliamentary hearing that saw lawmakers clash violently over control of a subcommittee. 
right? Hong Kong police have arrested seven pro-democracy legislators over parliamentary uh, meeting which descended into violence. The arrest on, sun uh, on Sunday of lawmakers Hu Chai Wee, Wai, Andrew Wan, Helena Wong, Kwok Wing Kin, Eddie Chu, Raymond Chan, and Fernando Chung were announced on an, on an individual and party Facebook page. A Hong Kong police told The Guardian that they received a report from the Legislative Council Secretariat on the 8th of May, the day of the meeting, and investigations led to the arrest of seven people by the public order event investigations team on sus suspicion of contempt and interference with the Lego uh, officers, right? And I just think, you know, this is just another sign of Hong Kong and Chinese agenda squashing yeah. Uh, these democracy guys, you know, I mean, contempt of court. Uh, I don't know if I'm just being ignorant, but it's such a small charge, and you know, it's yeah, you know, it is what it is. They're just trying to clean house and try to keep China under rule, communist rule. So, I don't, you know, it, it is what it is. But I think that um, people need to wake up. Chinese people need to wake up and realize that you know what. We see you, and I think they China has become comfortable because they know nobody like the USA and Russia won't call them out on their bullshit. So you know, you think that superpowers need to uh, keep each other in check, and I think people have failed to keep China and the USA in check. Yeah, yeah, the the situation in China and Hong Kong generally, and you know that whole South China Sea is quite interesting because. You know, there's quite a number of things at play. And just start, first of all, in Hong Kong, because that's where the points or, originated from. And we've seen how, you know, these laws passed in Hong Kong have become, you know, a problem because they clamped down on human rights, they clamped down on democracy. And you've also seen how also these laws have become retroactive in a sense whereby these laws can be used to, you know, charge people and arrest them on the basis of, things they did way back when, before the laws existed. And above this, we've also seen how these laws have become transnational. And I just want to point out here the hypocrisy and the double standards, right? So when the US, the president signs an executive order and the troops glad to go into another country, right? And then now China is introducing the national security law, which is transnational. So if you commit crimes of such as, you know, undermining the states in a different country, if you go to China, you can be arrested on that basis. But then now, because China is choosing to do the same thing, people are calling China out, they're calling it, you know, an authoritarian state, they're calling it all sorts of things. So I think we have to be cognizant and aware of the double standards of how we are looking at, you know, orders and executive powers. Because when the US signs a power, any executive order, the troops can gladly walk into your country. But when China says, our laws are transnational. People start saying, nope, we have to you know, keep China in check. It's quite interesting to see. And in terms of, of superpowers keeping each other in check, that has been, you know, something under, I think, under President Obama that, you know, that literally flew out the window. You know, he, he was quite receptive to China. You know, he increased trade with China. And I think those eight years that Obama was, was in power, enabled the Chinese regime of the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, mm. to accumulate a lot of a lot of resources, a lot of connection, a lot of power as well, because they were literally playing side by side with the US. And I think, you know, 
retrospectively, we can look back at that and say, you know, that was one of the shortcomings of President Obama amongst mm. the many that have been all documented. But then I think we have to be realistic and look at things, you know, as and how they are. Yeah, sure, he was the first black president and whatnot, but then some of his policies were questionable and some of the things he did were questionable as well. But then, fair enough, he's human as well, just like Trump and Biden and the rest of it. Uh, you know, I don't know if I'm just getting tired of race rhetoric, but I mean, regardless of whether he was a black president or not, like, you know, I'm not saying his policies were great and whatever, but like, let's take away, stop, like, Okay, he played a part because he gave the pe- black people the, the the understanding and appreciation that they can reach the highest office, right? So that was needed, right? But I mean, to yeah. question these policies, people forget that Bill Clinton had shit policies, George W. Bush at the Iraq War. Everybody had, if you look at every uh, politician from America. They've all had shit policies. And I think that people have decided to jump on the Obama wagon that he was a shit president because of his policies. But they failed to look at all the other white presidents that think. So can we not say that this... Can we stop... I hate when people make a race debate because, like, the argument has long been dusted, you know? Regardless of whether you're white, black, you can still have shit policies, right? And... Um, like I said, it's uh, the race rhetoric, and I think we need to end it. Um, and yeah, so I'm not speaking. Let's not look at Trump as a as a white leader. Let's just look at him as what he's done. What is his legacy, right? Exactly. Let's look at what he's done rather than what he's tweeted. Yeah, <laughs> but it's hard. It's hard to distinguish between the two. But let's try. You know that that we need to be able to become level-headed and take everything with a pinch of salt. You know. Yeah. Uh, that being said, I just want to take a, a, a look at um, Nigeria. So Nigeria fumes after view videos of deadly NSARS shooting shared on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Nigeria's information minister said some sort of some form of regulation could be imposed on social media just a week after protesters spread images and videos of a deadly shooting using Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, inst- images, videos, and an Instagram live feed from a popu- popular DJ spread news of shootings in Lagos on October 20th when witnesses and rights groups said the military fired on peaceful protesters. The protests. Uh, protests have been de- protesters have been demonstrating for nearly two weeks to demand an end to police brutality. The, the army denied its soldiers were anywhere. You know, it's it's quite funny how Jack Dorsey from Twitter, Beyonce, Lewis Hamilton—they're all saying they're calling for the country to resolve the conflict peacefully. But I mean, Jack Dorsey, the shadow bans anybody that says anything about the American. A situation you know so you know it's like let, let africans you know uh, share center stage you know put all the hashtags out uh, so that we can distract people from the shit that's happening back in america you know um yeah. once again it's one of those inc- incidents you know and i think that um this this whole uh announcement by the information minister is worrying because it's censoring people you know they they don't want the rest of the world to see what fuck ups nigeria is and they're scared of the sanctions but i mean if you are shooting innocent civilians i mean this is the only way journalism is the only way to highlight the atrocities happening within a country so i'm all for it if you see 
the military shooting uh, innocent, innocent civilians, record them so we can bring them to justice. You know, I do, I hate the sentiment that, you know, Africa has all the problems. I mean, everywhere has all problems. Look at Armenia and Azerbaijan. Look at Turkey, Greece. Look at what, what the French is happening. So Africa needs to be taken away from the center stage of, you know, the, this backward continent. You know, why why are, why do our conflicts on this continent receive greater attention and scrutiny than the others, you know? And then if you look at all the people that have been um, arrested at the ICC, the majority of them are Africans. And, you know, that's why Mbe- I think it was Mbeki was like, you know, maybe we need to leave the ICC because they only target Africans. Um so I don't know. At the same time, I don't know. I think I was all over the all over the place with this one. But I mean, just yeah. Uh, what do you think, man? Yeah, man. Look, it's it's one of those things, you know, where it's 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 a grin the hypocrisy of the world in which we live. You know, as as you rightly put it, when we have problems, they weren't highlighted. You know, I remember with bring back our girls everything else that's happened in the continent, you know, and all these terrorist attacks on the continent, those are extremely well highlighted, you know, but then when it comes to achievements, we we don't see the same amount of enthusiasm and we don't see the same amount of, of reporting on those achievements. So I think that in itself needs to be addressed. And it's funny to see Jack Dorsey coming out and saying that he, he'd like to see this matter resolved as quickly as possible and funny enough this is the same guy who's in charge of a company that censored the new york post what two weeks ago so it's it's interesting to see all these double standards of you know censorship human rights and whatnot and i i think for me as it's 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 important you know to obviously see you know prominent figures you know jack himself and you see the thing beyonce and and all these other you know celebrities as they were speak about all these things because it you know it brings the necessary attention and can prompt the necessary actions on on the ground as well but i think we also be beyond you know just seeing celebrities talk about this maybe maybe i've been under rock for the past three four weeks but i don't recall any presidents in africa speaking out against these attacks and this again points to how then how how then do you find a solution if you know there's a buddy buddy system to politics, not just domestically, but then also on the continent as well? Because I at not not at one point do I recall Ramaphosa speaking out, and mm. then I also do not recall you know anyone from you know even the FF itself you know the the our great fighters there at the top in red. I don't recall them speaking out about these atrocities as well. So I I I think again. We've, we've already hit bottom, you know, mm. but I think, again, it presents us with the opportunity to introspect, the opportunity to think about the future and what we want from that future, what we want that future to look like. So I, I think now we at a time in human history whereby what we think now and choose to do now will shape the future we have. And, you know, shaping the future is is by and large, you know, for the continent, leaning on natural resources, you know, gold, copper, whatever, whatever, and all these natural resources, oil, what have you, and whatnot, and whatnot. And we all know very well that recently in Mozambique, you know, there was a big gas find 
by French Total, French company Total, and you know it relates to you know an oil drill and whatnot. And you know the questions of how the profits of that will be used by the Mozambican government is you know remains to be seen. I know they said they want to have a sovereign wealth fund. I I'm, I'm not holding my breath given what happened what happened in Angola and you know all the stories we've heard from Angola. But then the the issue of oil and gas is coming home now, literally coming home. It's coming to South Africa now. So Total has found a new significant gas deposit offshore in South Africa. And this is a story by Nicholas Norbrook of the Africa Report. So before we speak, before we get going, right, I just want to give you know some context and background. Total found some gas in, in Mozambique. They moved in to you know start drilling and, and getting the job done. Then there were insurgents in the area. They've been giving them problems. South Africa is yet to respond. And we've recently spoken about how South Africa's shores are being used, you know, as ports for drug trafficking, human trafficking, the stealing of marine life, you know, mass fishing, you know, and all these other problems that lies or that lie rather within within our seas. So for me, this gas find is forcing the country to actually take ownership and become responsible in terms of protecting this gas fine because this is not just gas. This is just, you know, it's jobs, mm. it's revenue for the state, it's it's the bringing in of infrastructure as well for the country. So it's going to be interesting to see how the country responds in terms of protection for Total, because I if look, if I was an insurgent in Mozambique and I found out that Total has found gas in South Africa, I'd kind of want to move in because they're not willing to chase me out of this back back mm. backyard. So I might as well move in in the front as well. See? Yeah. But then anyway, here's the story, right? Let's just stick to the good news. The gas was found, there'll be jobs. Let's not wear our, you know, negative negativity hats as they were. So French energy group Total have hit a new deposit off the South African coast. It is a second discovery in recent times after a major propada field. The finds could help fuel gas-fired power plants and help transition away from coal. Again, another positive. So we said jobs, we said tags, and now we can see that the effects for ESCOM as well. Total operates the license, owning 45, a 45% stake. Qatar's QP owns 25%. And two Canadian companies on the rest, Canadian Natural Resources with 20% and Africa Energy with 10%. The well was, drill, the well was drilled by Africa Energy, who announced that the find was at least 50% bigger in area size than the Propada find. Propada, the discovery of which sparked new interest in the region is thought to contain the equivalent of 1 billion barrels of oil. So if anything, we can assume that, you know, this new find has 1.5 billion barrels of oil. And look, in any language, that's a lot of oil. And a lot of oil means a lot of money. Mm. And concerning for me is that of, of of this find, it's, it's foreign owned. Total is mm, French, yeah, 45%. Yeah. Qatar is Middle Eastern, 25%. Canadian is North American, and they also have a stake. And, you know, so 
it's an it raises a number of questions about you know the state's willingness to actually mm. make these fines on their on their own. Because remember, the state has its own petrol company, Petro yeah. SA. So where's Petro SA as all of this is happening in its own backyard? But mm. then we can answer that question for me when I give you the chance. The timing for both fines is good for South Africa's Mossel Bay gas to liquids refinery, which is said to close soon because state-owned PetroSA expects to deplete the gas fields that currently feed the refinery by the end of the year. So they knew, they know very well that by the end of this year, they might be out of gas, but mm. they chose not to make the efforts to find new gas fields. And now for Mossel Bay, the gas to liquids refinery was going to go out of business had Total not made Africa Energy and Total had they not made these fines, a number of jobs that have gone to waste, a great amount of infrastructure that have gone to waste. Here we are again. You tell me. Yeah, help me understand. We're playing catch up once again, so we are playing catch up once again. I mean, you know what? It's not like we just acquired some new land. We didn't acquire that. That has always been our land. Exactly. So for somebody foreign to come in and say, Oh shit, this gas on the We're looking like idiots. I mean, exactly. it's been chilling in our own backyard and we didn't look for it. I, yeah. I just, it just sums up Petro SA, our SOEs and so forth. They don't yeah. want to look for work. I mean, if you realize <laughs> that you're going to run out of um, gas in that, your plants are going to close at the end of the year, you start making a plan, right? Exactly. You start exactly. finding other suppliers, other holes to dig in, and it's crazy. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to go too deep into this conspiracy theory. I think we need to put a pin in this and talk about this again when the time hasn't eaten us away in terms of uh, our security of the matter, uh, uh, letting radical groups come in and take this away from us, you know? And I just want to leave you with this, you know? I hope this deal is transparent, right? There's a quote by Michael Elliott. There's a transparency transparency revolution sweeping the world. The more you can have transparency of payments, the more you'll be able to follow the money and the more you'll be able to see the payment for mineral rights in poor countries actually go to the people who need it and don't get put into a kleptocrat's pocket. Transparency is terribly important for us. And I, I want yeah. you to leave you with that because we need to have transparency in all of this. If it was up to me, I'd open up a ministry of transparency and every payment <laughs> and everything be shown up on our website. The ministry just, the whole job is to sit in front of the thing and publish everybody's salary, every payment, every tender, every mop for 200,000, every wooden mop <laughs> needs to be publicized, you know? Um, I mean, yeah. it, wasn't even, it wasn't even a squeegee mop, you know, there's a uh, silver mop, sort of like the green um, thing at the bottom. It wasn't even one of those. It was a wooden mop. So let us, you know, let us be transparent about what we're spending our money on, you know? Yeah. Let's yeah. plug the leak. And I, I think this is another opportunity that we've we had and we squandered and like you said i'm also worried about how much foreign investment went into this right i mean uh african company only owns 20 percent or i can't remember the statistic but up 20 10 20 percent right i mean if the majority is foreign owned what is to stop them from squeezing us out of it you know it's our mineral rights and we just gave it all away you know yeah we're looking for money and you know, instead of asking for a chicken, we took the egg. Every time we take the egg, why don't we 
take the chicken, make more eggs out of the chicken. But you know, uh, it goes back to mentality thing. You know, we we always want to eat first. You know, we we rather take the KFC over the fruit and the vegetables and the seeds to yeah. for the future. You know, um, so yet once again we are looking at short term. And I suppose it's a sign of the times, you know, in so much debt and so much money has been squandered that you just need a bailout to ease the people, but you don't realize that yeah. you're fucking yourself at the same time. Yeah, I I couldn't have said it better, man. I just want to leave you with this, with this quote on my end from Jose Saramago, and it yeah. states, it is economic power that determines political power, and governments become the political functionaries of economic power. Thank you very much, sir. Have a good week. Yeah, you summed it up perfectly. I love that. I love that. Since uh, uh, yeah, I just want fuck. How do I top that quote? Uh, <laughs> I actually had a quote to end this off, but I mean, I don't know if I can beat that. But I'll say, there's no beauty without truth, and if there's no truth without Trump transparency. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I think just in closing, just in closing, to you know, to to state that. The capacity to be transparent is there. And if I think on the continent, our greatest example is Rwanda. I think I've said this before, that in Rwanda, all tenders, any government spending is published online. Every dime Mm. is accounted for online. And all citizens can see how much is spent by each department for each project, Mm. et cetera, et cetera. And I think that in itself points to the capacity. Remember, we have more money than Rwanda. We have a greater mm. population than Rwanda. We have more people who have the knowledge, the know-how. So there's no excuse in that regard. And I think it's time we, we, we made means and not excuses. Mm. No, That's 100%. 100%. Yeah. Uh, I think...